Are you a people pleaser? If you're not sure how you would answer that question, let me give you three questions to help you figure out if you're a people pleaser or not. The first is, do you like conflict? The second is, do you find yourself having a hard time saying no? And third, do you ever find that you are begrudgingly doing something just so that other people will approve of you? If you answered yes to all three or even two-thirds of those questions, chances are you're a people pleaser, at least on some level. And I don't say that to make anyone feel bad about themselves. I think there's some great things about being a people pleaser. There's certainly the fact that people pleasers want to create unity and be at peace with others. We don't want to be in conflict all the time. We don't want to be fighting with people. And, uh, and that's just not something that's necessarily productive. But being a people pleaser does have its drawbacks. It can drain us. But more than that, the more significant concern is the fact that sometimes as we try to please people and and seek approval, we end up sort of tarnishing the relationships that we have. We think that we're constantly needing to do something more, to one-up something so that someone will give us attention or show us love. And This is a problem all over the place in in different places, whether it's your workplace or in your relational life with a significant other or whether it's pursuing somebody else. We can see this in all sorts of dynamics, but it's not just on an interpersonal, person-to-person level that this happens. It also happens on a spiritual level. I think a lot of people have this view that we need to do something to please God or to experience eternity. And different faiths have done different things about that. There are certain religious organizations that found everything around the fact that you have to do the right thing or look the right way or act or dress in certain patterns in order to please God or to experience heaven or nirvana or to appease the gods who might be angry at you. But what's different about the Christian faith is that there isn't this need to please God. There isn't this teaching that says, hey, you have to look a certain way or do a certain thing in order to have a relationship with God and to spend eternity with him. Now, I know that might be a shock for some because some people will say, well, that's not what I've heard. I've heard that the Bible is a list of do's and don'ts. I've heard of Christians who are goody two-shoes, or maybe I know them. I know Christians who are proud and hold themselves up as these people who just do everything perfectly. And so you have this sort of tarnished view of what it means to be a Christian and to pursue God and be in relationship with him. And that's a problem. It really is because nowhere in God's word does it say that that's what we have to do. In fact, it teaches us something very different. It teaches us that we are all in a relationship with God because of grace alone. Today, what we're doing is we're continuing on in our series, The Five Solas. The five solas are essentially five phrases that came about during the Protestant Reformation. These phrases were given to provide sort of a definition, a contextualization for different beliefs, uh, different biblical truths that we have that had always been there, but that the church had departed from in the early 16th century. And so we have these truths, but you might be wondering, why are we talking about something that's from way back then? Well, the reality is that this stuff has not just gone away way back then, but it started to creep in. The the teachings that we hold so dearly have started to become corrupted by people adding things in 
to what we believe God's word says and how he wants us to know him and how to live with him. And so we're going through this series, the Solus series, looking at five things that alone stand as truth. And so we're looking at these five statements, Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And each one of those things work together to help us understand the truth that we find in Scripture and ultimately about who God is and how we can follow him in order that he would receive all the glory. And so last week we started with sola scriptura, Scripture alone as being our authority in matters of faith and life. And that leads us to where we are today with sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. And next week we'll look at sola fide, that we're saved by grace alone through faith. And then that's all done through solus Christus, through Christ alone, for the purpose of soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. But let's dive in today by looking at sola gratia, that we are saved by God's grace alone. You know, there's nothing that we can do that uh, measures up or counts towards earning favor with God. And this is a little bit of a reversal from what had been taught during the days of the Reformation. Back then, the problem and why the, the Protestant leaders were revolting against the Catholic Church was the Catholic Church had seen that people were willing to do things in order to pursue God's grace. The Catholic Church actually believed that it was by God's grace alone that we were saved, but they questioned how sufficient it was. And so they assured people that, you know what, you actually have to keep on doing things to keep on staying in God's favor. And so they would sell these things called indulgences. And indulgences were almost like little tickets that said, you have purchased for you or for someone else favor with God. And they were also teaching at this very same time that, you know what, you uh, need to realize that there might be a purgatory. And in the afterlife, there's this place that you can go to to experience a purifying of yourself. You can kind of suffer so that you can experience God faster. And the church leaders went, whoa, 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 whoa. That is a big problem. That is not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are in God's love, in relationship with him, that we'll experience an eternity with him just because of who he is and what he has done. But just like long ago in the Reformation, we've allowed these different teachings to creep in. And they look a little bit different, but in a lot of ways, they're actually the exact same thing. One of the teachings that you might heard, and many people actually believe it's in the Bible itself, is this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. We have this idea that if we do something, God will help us along our way in a relationship with him in terms of experiencing heaven, in terms of being a good Christian. And on the surface, it doesn't sound like that bad. I mean, it motivates people to do the right thing, to participate in faith, and it sounds really great. But the problem is it's totally unbiblical. It actually goes ahead and cheapens the wonderful news of who God is and, and who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross and what that means for our life and the fact that we actually can't do anything to help God, but God alone accomplishes our salvation, us being saved from our sin. Another teaching that's really common is, of course, that if I'm a good person, I'll get to go to heaven. 
And I wish that teaching was true. I mean, that's just such a nice teaching and it's such a nice thing to be able to say about people and say, you know what, they're a great person, so I trust that one day they'll be in heaven. But that's not the truth that we see in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us that we have to be a good person in order to achieve heaven. It tells us that we need God and a relationship with him to do so. And finally, the third teaching, which is mostly already within the church, and it's this teaching that's a bit of a problem, and it's that says that out of my will, I am able to make the decisions that make me right with God. And while some people would say, well, that's sort of a distortion, we see that this idea that it's out of our will and our choice and our decision, that we actually cheapen the message of the fact that God has done it all and does it all for us. And so this teaching of sola gratia is meant to dismantle all these types of things so that we in turn end up looking at God and just having our minds blown by how much he loves us, how kind he is to us, and ultimately that should point us to wanting to worship him and honor him in everything that we do. So to look at this, I want us to look at what I think is sort of the central text in the Bible that that explains this idea. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And as we read this passage, I want you to really uh, take note of how powerful it is. If you're reading this in in a physical Bible, grab out a pen so you can underline stuff. If you're using the Bible app, make sure you double tap and highlight some things because you're going to want to come back to this time and time again. And honestly, it makes me feel like we also need to grab out some shoes for dancing because the stuff in this verse is just so incredible. It should cause us to move and to celebrate. So let's dive in. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived amongst them one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming age he might show us the incomparable richness of his grace expressed his, and expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is so good. Church, we, we got to get excited about us. This, this is the stuff that should motivate us. It should fire us up because it tells us all about how wonderful God is. This, even though it was written long ago, hasn't lost even a little bit of meaning or value for our lives. This is something significant that tells us about who we are without Jesus and what he means for us and who we get to be and what we get to do out of that instead of to earn that. 
So let's look and, and sort of break this down, looking at a few verses at a time. And let's start with verse 1, where it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Paul's writing this to uh, believers, and he was saying, you know what? When you hadn't met Jesus yet, you were dead. If you haven't met Jesus yet, you are dead. Because the, the transgressions, the things that you do that go against God, the sins, the things that you do wrong, whether it's a misdeed towards God, towards others, towards yourself, those things bring death in. There's a cost to them, Paul says. And so in going against the way of God, you bring about brokenness and destruction, which leads towards your death. And so what Paul ends up saying is he says, this isn't about, you know, doing one good thing because you are doing so much that invites death. And once death is within your life, it's there to stay unless. But we'll get to that unless in just a minute. The problem that the passage wants us to see is this isn't about comparing good and bad because we don't do some good things that can override all the sin that we have committed because we actually live in sin. In verses 2 and 3, we see this. Uh, after verse 1, it says, You were dead in your transgressions and sin. And then verse 2, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul's telling us, we got to get this, that we all sin. And it's not that just we do it once or twice, but we actually live in it. We walk in it. It's a lifestyle that comes with the territory. We follow after Satan and, and the way that he tricks us and deceives us into following him in temptation. We live in a broken world and as we are born, our nature is corrupted. We have this thing that Paul calls the flesh. It's these desires that we have that are twisted away from what God wants and we pursue them and we want to gratify them because that brings us this sense of life. We can't be confused and try to write it off as Christians and say, you know what, sin is, is it's, it's all bad and there's nothing good. Well, that's true in what it is. We have to be honest to the fact that sin sometimes feels good. Sometimes it's a, an exhilarating thing to sin and to go into something that we know it's wrong. It can, it can give us sort of this, the, the, this thrill and this rush which makes us feel alive. And Paul wants us to understand that, yeah, well, you, that brings you uh, this feeling that you're alive. You're only alive physically, but you're dead spiritually. A life of sin is physically alive, but spiritually dead. And we see that this is just a part of our nature. It's part of being born into a broken and twisted world. And, and so by our nature, by the way that we live, we are deserving of God's wrath and punishment. And so this is a problem. And Paul needs us to understand this. He needs us to understand what the bad news of, of who we are and how we live, uh, what, what that looks like. Because what Paul's about to do is not 
to continue to say this stuff to harm us and beat us down and make us feel worthless. But he's setting us up with the bad news so that the good news seems all the better. Paul wants us to understand that, yeah, we are dead in our transgressions and we deserve the punishment that we're on track to receive. But there's some good news coming. If you've ever had the chance to read Charles Dickens' classic Christmas story, A Christmas Carol, you might have caught these words, and I love them because it kind of frames for me this picture that Paul's trying to get us to understand. He writes this right at the beginning of the book to set up the story of how Scrooge will go from being this miserable old guy to, to seeing a change in perspective, experiencing something that will lead him in a new direction of life. It, but it starts way back with, with someone's death. It says this, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. And Scrooge signed it. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. And then a few lines down, it says this. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. And just as that story was saying, hey, there's something bad here, but it brings about what is wonderful. The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, there's some bad news but it's going to bring about something that is good. And so if I can, what I'd love to do is just change these words from Charles Dickens to talk, Dickens to talk about uh, what it looks like to live in what Paul's talking about. But then we're going to celebrate with the good news of verses 4 and 5 in Ephesians 2. So let me read this. You are dead in sin. There's no doubt about it. That your death certificate has been signed by God. It's been affirmed by the Bible, by Paul, and now by me. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in sin, but God. These are my two favorite words in all the Bible. We were dead, but God, even though we were dead, stepped in and brought us to life in Christ. Do you know what a dead person can do? Nothing. They're dead. All they can do is just keep on breaking down and decomposing. A dead person can't do something good that brings them back to life. A, a dead person can't call 911 and get some help. A dead person can't make someone love them after they're gone. A dead person is just that. They're dead. But God, God is very much alive. And he has the power to bring life to us. God made us alive when we were dead. And as it says in verse 5, it is by grace then that you have been saved. Going back to all those false teachings that we have this idea that it's my will or I can do the right things or I can say and be the right person misses out on the mark that we are dead and there is nothing that we can do. 
you are dead in your sin before God does a work in you. But what God does is he chooses to work with us. Even when we accept, eventually accept Jesus through faith, it's because the Holy Spirit has done a work in us that allows us to receive him in faith. As we read in verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And we're going to look next week at that idea of sola fide and through faith alone. But what we need to understand today is it's not the faith alone that saves us. It's it's the faith that allows the grace to work within us, and that faith is brought about by the Spirit of God. I heard someone once describe it as the God is the doctor, and he sees everyone around who is sick and dying, and rather than just leaving us or waiting for the patients to come to him, God goes out, and he brings along the medicine, the cure that people need. And he comes up and he diagnoses the sickness and then he provides us with the medicine. And then our faith is swallowing that medicine. But as we allow the grace of God to come in, what happens is it's the grace of God that heals us, that brings us life. It's never what we've done. It's never even the faith itself that's done anything. It's the fact that God has come to us. God has accomplished something. God has provided something. He's given it to us so that we could be healed and come to life. So if the medicine is grace, the question is then, for me at least, how does it work? What does it look like? What does it do? Well, God tells us that he does it all through himself. God the Father does it through God the Son, through Jesus and it's through Jesus and with Jesus that we are saved. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read again verses 4 to 10. And as I do so, I want you to just take note of how often it says with Christ and in Christ. So Paul writes this here. It's because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from you. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's nothing that we do. But we receive the greatest gift of all, which is the undeserving love of God. It's an, that's what all grace is. It's this undeserved, loving commitment that God gives to us. And so God, he sends Jesus, his son, to earth to live the perfect life, to die on the cross so that he would be the one who takes on the punishment that we deserve, so he would experience the fullness of death, but in his power, in his might, in his majesty, that he would rise back to life. But he doesn't just come up alone, but he brings us with him. It is with Jesus and in Jesus that the grace of God restores us. That's how this salvation by grace alone works. 
This is why the teaching of sola gratia is so incredible. We can't do it on our own. We just simply can't make it. And we need to recover this because we need to be freed from the burden that we have put upon ourselves. God never demanded performance from us. He never thought we could do enough to earn his love and grace. And so he came and paid the huge price that we can't even fully fathom out of his love and kindness. In his infinite love and kindness, he paved the way for us and he brings us along with him. And you'll notice in verse 9, God made sure it was done all by himself. God created us. He saw that we had a problem, so he sought us out. And he sought us out that he could pay for our penalty. And he paid for our penalty so he could bring us with him. He brought us with him so he can give us his spirit. He gave us his spirit so we can be empowered in him. He empowers us in him to bring glory to him. All along the way, it is God doing it so he alone would be able to take the credit. So he alone would be worthy of worship and praise, not so that we could boast, but so we could simply be recipients so that we can reflect his glory. And so it's all about the grace of God alone. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing about us in here. There, there's a meaning for you in this today. If you have yet to receive the love of God, you have to know that it is there for you. If you aren't yet a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that you are dead in your sin, but God has already dealt with the consequences. We simply need to receive his grace we need to allow that to sit in. And so what I would encourage you to do is to simply say thank you. God's not asking you to perform, to, to earn it. You don't have to, to somehow buy a ticket to receive what he's already done. It's already done in full. You can take off the burden of, of feeling like you need to be good enough. You can take off the burden of feeling like you're, you're not worthy of love. You can take off the burden of feeling that there is someplace good enough. And know that God alone is good enough. That his work alone is sufficient. And that you only need to be thankful. And so I'd encourage us today, if, if this is the first time you've heard about this or the first time you feel like the Holy Spirit has been working in your life to, to bring you towards him, I'd like you to pray with me. If you're a, a seasoned Christian and, and today this, this news re-excites you or, or continues to, to keep you motivated, I encourage you to pray with me today. Let us just be thankful for who God is. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Jesus, thank you for giving up your life so that I might have life with you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you continue to do in me. And God, thank you that you've done this all through your grace alone. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So as we thank God for it, the next thing we do is we celebrate it. We celebrate the fact that we have this life. 
I've said it a thousand times and I will continue to say it again. There should be no such thing as a miserable Christian. I know that our world is confusing and chaotic and there's questions and wonderings and there's things we don't like and problems that need to be solved. But ultimately, the biggest problem that we have, the one that we have created, the one that we're experiencing the consequences of, has been dealt with by God's grace alone. And through that, he shows us that he has the power to deal with everything, that he is in control of it all, and that he will take care of what is most important. We should also be celebrating. We should not be people who are hunkered down and miserable because we should be freed from the weight of, on our shoulder that we have to be good enough, that we have to be the right people. We should simply celebrate that God has done it all and that we are free in him. We should never have proud Christians who look down on others and, and think they're better than other Christians or, or non-Christians because God has freed us to just celebrate him, not ourselves. And so let us celebrate who God is and the fact that he has accomplished so much by his grace alone. And finally, we got to get to work. And I know it seems ironic to say that we should, we should get to work in a message that's about God's grace as, as being sufficient and doing all the work by himself and for himself. But as we read in verse 10, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says this, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we live a Christian lifestyle of response, of thankfulness, of, of doing things to worship him, we don't do it to earn his favor. We don't do it to earn his love. We don't do it to get into another level of heaven. We don't do it to, to get the brownie points. We don't do it to, to be superior to other people. We do it because God has done a new work within us and he has prepared stuff for us to do so he can get all the glory. And so we participate in it we, in order that we we could worship him and celebrate him in and through our day-to-day -day lives. Our last sermon series was about loving our neighbors and why we love our neighbors is because we have been saved by grace and we want our neighbors to know about that. We have neighbors in our community. You have co-workers in your office, classmates in your school. You have people all around you who are dying because they are living in sin and they are broken and they are experiencing nothing but death and the burden of wondering how to get out. We have the answer. He is the answer. By his grace alone, they can have their but God moment. We simply go and share ours. We love them in order to tell them it so that they too might have life through the grace of God alone for his glory alone. Let us be a people who put in the work to celebrate who God is and what he has accomplished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we do thank you for what you've accomplished. God, we thank you for your great love of us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that you have spared us from your wrath, Lord God. We, we thank you that while we were dead in our sin, and as it says in Romans, while we were your enemies, that, Lord God, you didn't just leave us there in our own mess, but that you sought us out, that you found us, that you provided us what we needed for life, that you gave us your grace, Lord, that you lovingly committed 
committed yourself to us even when we do nothing to deserve it. And God, thank you that you don't demand things from us, but you just show us your love for your glory. Lord God, I pray that we would be people who would never be miserable because we would live with the great joy of knowing you and what you have done. Lord God, would we be a people who would make an impact in the city of Abbotsford and around our world out of the expression of knowing that, that we aren't working to, to earn anything for you, but Lord God, or Lord God, we are just there to bring you glory, honor, Praise God, you deserve it all. And so I pray that as a church, we would be people who would be so grace-filled because of the grace that you have shown us. Would we be people who are so loving out of the thankfulness of how you loved us? Lord God, would we see a change in our community? And Lord, would we celebrate knowing that it is because of your grace alone that it has been accomplished. We pray this all. In your name, Jesus, Holy Spirit, be with us as we go and accomplish this. Not really that we do it at all, but that we are your tools by your hands, accomplishing your grace in others' lives. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.